Thank you, worship team. You have your uh, copy of God's Word. Go ahead and grab it. Open it to Colossians 1. That's where we'll be. Colossians 1. Get myself there as well. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we have some available in the lobby for you. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one as our gift to you. Um, the best thing we can do is point you to God's Word, and if that means also putting one in your hands, then we'd love to do that. Um, it'll also be on the screens uh, as we read in a moment. Well, uh, today is Super Bowl Sunday. Um, I'm really more of a college football guy, but I'll endure it so I can eat chips and dips and fajitas and hang out and all that. Um, but today's Super Bowl Sunday, and like every year since 19, uh, 19, not 76, 96, the Cowboys will be at home watching just like you and me. Uh, back then, in those glory days, Jimmy Johnson um, was known for putting the Cowboys through intense, demanding, painful practices. It's sort of a hate-love and more hate, and then a sort of love relationship with Jimmy Johnson because of what he put them through, the strains of practice. And then before him, 70s, uh, 80s, um, the Fedora man, Tom Landry, um, was the legendary coach who also uh, put the Cowboys of those days, who also went to Super Bowls, through the grueling grind. In fact, Tom Landry uh, was given license to do more grinding than Jimmy Johnson, and Jimmy Johnson way more than the soft pansy football that is today, where they, you know, they basically contract themselves out of practicing, which is why the football is less than. Sorry, this isn't a commentary on football. Um, but I say all that to say, really, you think of Jimmy Johnson, you think of Tom Landry, they're, they're looked as, wow, they really brought um, their teams to that, that end, that goal that they were after, but they also did so through the grind, if you will. And Tom Landry is famous for this quote. He said, it's my job to make men do things they don't want to do, i.e. practice, in order that they might achieve the thing they always dreamed of. And the part of what Tom Landry would make them do that they didn't want to do was two-a-days, two-a-day practices in summer heat, um, and those things, two-a-days, make no sense, make no sense whatsoever unless they are embraced as purposeful in light of a larger story, in light of or in pursuit of a bigger goal. And again, sadly, the Cowboys are not going to be part of that bigger goal pursuit today. But why do I start this way? Well, almost none of us in here that I know of will be seeing NFL action Maybe some of you littler ones will grow into that. Um, and you and I will likely not be suiting up for two-a-days um, this August. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called not to spectate, but to get into the action of what he's called us to, his great commission, his mandate for us, the ultimate goal for us to glorify him by making disciples and by making maturing disciples. And so we're not called to spectate, but get in the game. But we can expect pains and strains that in the moment don't make a whole lot of sense. And yet with maturity, with 
a perspective that only can come from him, they can begin to make, the pains and strains of life can begin to make some sense. Maybe not complete sense this side of eternity, but life is painful and following him will involve challenge, will involve being dismissed, will involve mistreatment, harsh treatment at times, hostility from the world. We are to expect that. And in fact, one um, pastor said a long time ago, if I'm told that it's going to be a rough road along, like, along the journey of following Christ, every bump I hit along the way lets me know I'm on the right road. But I'm concerned that many of us today, just like the football players have grown soft, we have grown unaccustomed to, or we find strange and dismissible every bump along our way. And Paul's going to call us today to say, no, I want to give you some perspective. I want to, if that's where we are, and discomfort throws, derails us quickly, if we find ourselves destabilized by some pressure, he says it may be an indicator that we're not living in light of a larger story. We're not aiming our lives in pursuit of a God-sized goal, if you will. And so Paul's going to take us today, uh, he's going to invite us to know and to participate in a life that makes sense, shaped by God's truer story. And to say with Paul, like he's going to say as we begin the passage here, now I rejoice in my sufferings. That sounds like a sicko. He also says, for this purpose, I labor and strain What kind of story must he be living in? What kind of aim must he have? And what is that, what is in that for us that God would like us to see? If you're not there, look in Colossians 1. We're going to begin in verse 24. Colossians 1, 24 through 29. The Apostle Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God has willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, or better, some of your translations say, him we proclaim, because that's the emphasis in the original. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Why? So that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. This is the word of the Lord. Three phrases that storyboard and give meaning to Paul's purposeful straining that he describes and the sufferings that he gladly endures in order that the Colossians and that we might come to know Jesus Christ and grow to maturity in Christ. The three phrases will serve as our storyboard for today's message. It's, you were, now I, so that. Probably no matter what your translation is, something like that is in yours. He begins, now I rejoice in my sufferings. 
He actually, in the pre, we'll go to it in a minute, in the previous three verses before this section, he says, you were. So he tells them what the, part of their story is, is who they formerly were before Christ. But because of who you were and now are, now I, and he's going to give us, this is how I go about my ministry. This is what I give myself to. This is what I strain for. This is what I give all intense and intentional effort toward. And then he says, and here's why. So that. So you were, now I, so that. Not only is this their story that he's catching them up into and that he's caught up, this is Paul's story. Because I once was one who persecuted the church and I was met on the road on my way to kill Christians or to cart them off. And he met me on the road and he said, nope, now you're changing teams. Now you're on my team and here's what you're gonna do. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And Paul is living that out. He's embodying the stewardship that God has given him for the Colossians' sake, for many other churches' sake, including ours today. And we need to read this passage both from a corporate standpoint. What does it look like for us to be um, as a body, as a church family maturing? And then particularly for each of us to walk away and say, what's my story? Where am I in the story that God the larger story of God, and then what's my participation? How am I participating? How am I stewarding my story in the midst of what God has called us and called you and me to? And so that's where we're going. You were, now I, so that. Let's look at first, you were, now I. You were, now I. Paul is, again, writing to the church in Colossae that's at Philemon's house. And it's a mixed bag. Um, there, there are Gentiles who've become believers. That means anybody non-Jewish. And there are Jews who've become believers in Christ. And they're, they're a mixed bag. And he's writing to these saints. That means set apart ones, means holy ones. But what that mean, holy means, set apart for a, an intended purpose. God set them apart from who they once were. Now they are his, and now he set them apart for his purposes in their locale, in Colossae, in the marketplace, as they gather house to house, as they interact with family, they are his set apart ambassadors representing him to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. But first, you were, look back at verse 21, they'll be on the slides here. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, he's like, this is your story. You weren't just, go back to 21, sorry. You weren't just benign, nice folks, you know, keeping your nose clean. You were actually alienated from the people of God and you were hostile in minds. Picture shaking your fist, engaged in evil deeds. Again, not neutral, not benign. You were part of those who would resist God, oppose God, those who would reject God. That's who you were, verse 22. Yet he has now. So not only will it be Paul, you were, so now I, but only reason why he can say now I, talking to them as followers of Christ, is he says, you were this, and yet he, speaking of Jesus, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Why? In order to present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. There will be a presentation of all believers to God. 
And he's saying, Jesus has reconciled you. You were hostile, you were enemies. He's brought you together. And then he's brought you together in one body also, reconciled, in order to present you holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, and this is, Paul's not going, I don't know. He's saying, this is what I want to reassure you that you're heading in that direction. And here's what I want to, I want to, you know, see you continue in that faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. And now, just like Paul often does, he said that phrase, he's like, oh, let me talk to you about what it looks like that I'm a minister, okay? So this is who you were, apart from Christ, alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he's now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, so he made you his. And so because you belong to him and because he has given me this stewardship, I want you to know now I, this is what I will be intentional about and intense in my effort about. I love, you know, we, we would definitely highlight God's grace. God's grace is, um, is opposed to earning. We don't earn a relationship with him, but God's grace in Paul's life, it's opposed to earning. It's unmerited favor, but it's not opposed to effort. For by grace, you've been saved Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he prepared uh, long before and that we should walk in them. Walking takes effort. Walking takes moving in a direction. And he says, you've been saved for a purpose. And he's going to call it here a stewardship, taking care of that which is God's possession, but he's put you in a place of responsibility. So Paul is going to say, now I, because of who you were, now I rejoice in my sufferings. That's a strange, strange thing. I'm suffering, but I rejoice. It lets you know that joy has nothing to do with circumstance. That, that you can be hurting. You can be perplexed. You can be frustrated. And yet still also, with the fruit of the Spirit being born in my life, the Spirit enabling me, I can rejoice. Where is Paul writing this from? He's writing it from prison. He's, that's part of his suffering. And he says, in Philippians, also one of the prison epistles, he says in you know, Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He's writing that from a prison, the same chapter. He says, I've learned to be content in all circumstances. Whether I got a lot on the table or I got almost nothing, where does that contentment, where does that joy, where does that, I, I made up a buddy word, where does that joyancy come from? That joyancy comes from, he lives in light of who he was and who he now is in Christ and the fact that Christ is in him, giving him the strength, giving him the joyancy to suffer. And he says, I suffer, now I rejoice in my sufferings. Look at the next phrase, what's it say? For your sake. He's going through it, not for himself, he's going through it for them. So his sufferings have some ripple effect for them, some reassurance for them, some encouragement for them, some empathy, some co-suffering with and for them. He says, I can rejoice because in part of God's larger story, as the gospel, as he talked about in verses three through eight of chapter one, he's thanking God that the gospel, they heard it, they believe they have a love for one another, and that gospel keeps abounding more and more 
And Paul's like, I rejoice to see that happening. And if that means through my suffering, then so be it. So the gospel keeps resounding. And I just wonder as I say that for myself, how quickly do I fold in the tent when discomfort comes, when suffering comes, when something I don't like comes down the pike? How do I respond? And Paul's saying, I'm leaning in the direction of rejoicing even in the midst of the suffering. Now, we're not going to look at it, but you can look um, in the Corinthian letters. You can look some other places. Paul lists shipwreck, and he was beaten, you know, 39 lashes multiple times. He was kicked out of cities. He was stoned, and that doesn't mean drug taking. That means stones, rocks. He went through all that and more, and he always did so in light of the larger story that he's part of. If not, suffering makes no sense. If not, life not working on my terms makes no sense. But Paul says that's, that's a lesser story. I want to live for the larger story of God's gospel and grace. So he embraces hardship. In fact, now he's going to say something even more mysterious, strange, and what in the world does he mean? He says um, in the end of that verse, Now rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Affliction, excuse me. That's a shocking statement. Paul's saying, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What could possibly be lacking in Christ's afflictions that we just sang about, that we just rehearsed? What could be lacking where Paul would say such a thing? Didn't Jesus from the cross say, it is finished? Hasn't he done everything necessary to save us? Well, let me say this. There's a lot of scholarly wrestling on this. Um, But here's what we, we can say. What Paul is not saying, he is not saying what Jesus did on the cross was deficient. And that I'm somehow adding to it. That's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is now, I'm now participating in Christ's afflictions as part of his church. This is what the the Lord declared to him when he met him on that road to Damascus, stopped him in his tracks. And then Paul, um, you know, was blind for a little bit. And then God sent Ananias. I would not want to be him. Like, hey, remember that guy that was killing Christians? Like, I want you to go to him and you're going to kind of mentor him. Like, I'd be like, I think I got that Texas crud that everybody's got right now, the fever. I don't think I can show up. But he tells Ananias, the Lord said to him, go for he, meaning Paul or Saul, actually, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, but also... Paul is to suffer for Christ's namesake, for Jesus' reputation. That there's something about if he will go through it, just like Jesus did, not exactly, but as he will suffer in like manner, then he can reflect Jesus. So Paul's not saying that Christ's death wasn't enough. We're not going to quit having the Lord's Supper because, well, it wasn't enough. He's not saying that. Why would Paul say something was lacking? Well, in one sense, the work of salvation is complete. It is finished, paid for, done deal. But in another sense, the saving act is not complete 
until we hear about it and respond. In other words, God's intention was it would keep echoing out so that others could hear and respond. The the reformer Martin Luther famously said, it wouldn't matter if Jesus died a thousand times if no one ever heard about it. Or Carl Henry said, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. What he is saying is following Jesus to become like Jesus will mean the cross before the crown. Suffering precedes reward or glory. And that we are participating in this Jesus-shaped life that often involves afflictions and sufferings and trials that precede glory. We're not filling up because there's some need or lack in what Jesus did on the cross, but we're filling it up because we are united with him and part of his body as that gospel of his finished work, once for all work, goes forward. And so that's what Paul uh, is really getting at. He's saying Christ's sufferings are not complete in the fullest sense until you hear and respond. And if it takes my suffering to bring it to pass, I'll gladly go through it. Last thing I'll say, another pastor I heard say, Christ's cross was for propitiation. That's a fancy word for an an offering to, you know, his atoning offering for us. Christ's cross was for propitiation. Ours is for propagation. Another fancy word means getting it out. It said, Christ suffered to accomplish salvation. We suffer to spread salvation. So Paul believes that the ongoing ministry of Jesus is happening in Colossae. And so if that means suffering for him, then so be it. I gladly and rejoicingly go through it. Also, Paul would say, I believe the ongoing ministry is happening here in Allen Bible with us. So we should expect the same responses, rejections, and rough patches that Jesus went through because he said so. If you want to align with me, they're going to treat you like they treat the teacher. As we seek to embody his mission here in this city and through you and your neighborhood and workplaces, Paul believes, in part, suffering, sacrificing, doing whatever it takes so that others may hear is absolutely worth it. And life makes sense because it's part of a larger story, God's larger story. So then that's where Paul understands his stewardship. That's where he goes next. Not only does he embrace the hardships, but he does so because it's part of the stewardship that he embraces. Um, The word uh, stewardship, it it literally means house manager. The word house is in this um, word, but a steward is not the owner And yet the steward is responsible to the owner to take care of, to manage, to invest and be profitable with what the owner entrusted into his or her hands. So what does a a steward need to be found? Faithful. They need to be found not embezzling, not, you know, sloughing it off, but to be faithful and responsible with what the owner has entrusted to him. Well, what's been entrusted to Paul specifically and then through him to us, it's something he calls the mystery or this mystery. So in verse 25, he says, of this church, I was made a minister according to this stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. Why? So that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. And when I say the word of God here, he's saying that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generation, but has now been manifested to his saints. So let's talk about that for a second. The mystery, and then he'll repeat it, this mystery. 
This is not like Scooby-Doo in the mystery machine van if you're from my era. Even if you're not, you probably have seen a Scooby-Doo and th those uh, meddling kids or whatever they <laughs> always be at the end. Uh, this, is, this is not a case to crack. This is not a riddle that you've got to have an inside track in order to decipher, which is what the false teachers at Colossae were doing. They're saying, hey, there's some secret knowledge. There's some mystery religion, if you will, that you can't really get in on unless you come through us and only if you're kind of part of the inner circle. This is not that. It's not a whodunit crime to solve. Mystery biblically is that which has always been part of God's plan, but had not been fully revealed until now. It was there, it was hidden in the past, but it will be unveiled later in God's perfect timing. Particularly here, what Paul is saying, and let's, let's continue to read. He says, um, the mystery that has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, that's y'all, that's us, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's saying, so one of the, one of the, the mysteries that Paul is to steward and therefore bring to light, or God wants to bring to light through Paul, that's always been part of God's plan, but in God's timing, it wouldn't all be revealed at once. So there was some concealing or some hiding, and then it's going to come out is this idea of bringing light and salvation to the Gentiles, which was always part of God's plan, but Jewish and Gentile believers in Jesus united in one body, that had not been unveiled, which is also why in the church, and particularly in Ephesians, you see this mixed bag of Jew and Gentile, they're kind of like, hey, you're from that side of the tracks, I'm from this side of the tracks, and the Jewish believers particularly would have had trouble going, well, hey, we had some God-fearers back in the day, but they weren't really on the inside inside, so we could still kind of look down on them a little bit. And so even remember they have in the book of Acts, you see that the church is really wrestling. Do they need to kind of become Jewish first and then they'll be full, you know, followers of Christ? And they have to wrestle with that. And they say, no, but, there, but we do need to figure out some ways to preserve the unity that we've been given. That's why Ephesians 4, 3, I love it. We're to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And Christ himself is our peace, who's broken down every wall. So race, socioeconomic status, he said, all of that is, is not, you know, part of the status. Now you are one in Christ. Still differences, still you come from the background you come from, and you, but the union in Christ, the united, being united in Christ, and Christ particularly... Now in the Gentiles, or as you see in the book of Acts, when Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit, that blows their minds. But now, that, now they see that, oh, this was part of God's plan that the Gentiles would get light, but not just light. Jesus has made them one with us. And so um, this mystery was also unveiled that Jesus didn't just die for us, but he lives in us. He says, this is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul says a lot about us being in Christ. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, Romans 8, 1. Even in this passage, he talks about, I want to present everyone complete in Christ. So being in him, but this actually says, he indwells you if you have believed in him. 
Christ in you, the hope of glory, the hope, the longing within you for a life of meaning, a life that makes sense, a life of fullness and flourishing. He says, part of what God's plan is, is that in order to to get to that place in your life, you need Christ in you so that that hope wouldn't be cotton candy, wispy hope, but it would be an assured and certain future glory that you and I will share with Jesus. When all sin and all suffering is done away with, and we are united with him forever um, in eternity. So he says, Christ in you, that's the hope of glory. For every believer, Jewish or Gentile, no matter your background, because of your trust in Jesus and him alone, Christ indwells you. He gives you that cross-based, confident expectation because he's in you, your future secured, and you will one day share in his glory. So what's Paul's? He says, my stewardship is to make that word fully known. And he wants to do so, so that they understand, as I make that fully known, I want you to see that you're not a spectator on the sidelines. You are invited to be a participant in God's larger story as the gospel goes forth. This is Paul's pulsating purpose. This is what he gets up every morning with. And he wants them, he wants us to understand the gospel, not just at a mental level, but at a visceral level. I know I like that word, but I want you to feel it. That's, he doesn't want us to just know, you know, like the atomic numbers of the elements on the periodic table. That's knowing stuff. But he wants you and me to know that Christ is in you. So your hope is secured. Peter says it, that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who calls us to be born again to a living hope, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And it's a hope that's secured. It's imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you if Christ is in you. That's what Paul's after. That kind of security, that kind of stability, that kind of vitality and flourishing for these people to know so that they... it not only courses through us, that truth, but it sets the course for us. It frames our days and our seasons and our years and our lives' ambitions for us. And so he says, because of that, here's my why. Here's my aim in proclaiming Christ, this Christ in you mystery. You were, now I, we proclaim so that This is verses 28 and 29. We won't spend as much time here um, because we did a message on this in September. You can go back and listen to that. But this is very plain on the page. Paul says, here's my so that. You were formerly not belonging to him, yet he reconciled you to him. He also redeemed you, which is what he says earlier in chapter one, that he bought you out of slavery to sin so that you are now, you've been bought with a price. Therefore, don't just glorify God with your mind, but all your oomph. And he says, we proclaim him, this one who is Christ in you, the hope of glory, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom. That's every man and woman, that's person. We proclaim him, or like I said, it's really him we proclaim. And how do we do so? Admonishing, that involves some warning. Hey, you're, you're kind of veering off the road. You're kind of drifting from Jesus. 
you're kind of drifting into a lesser story that's about you. He says, I want to call you out of that lesser story, whatever it is. For some of us, um, it's, it's a perfectionism. That's a lesser story. For some of us, it's a, I'm not going to be happy until I grab this and grab that. It's a consumerism, a materialism. Some of us, it's um, all that we know, and we want everyone to know all that we know. Whatever it is, there's lots of isms and lots of lesser stories. And Paul's saying, admonishing is warning us when we are, there's, here's a yellow flag, you seem to be drifting into a lesser story. You seem to be driven by a lesser story, and that's not what God has for you. That's admonishing, it's a little bit of a warning. And, and then teaching is instructing, coaching. Sometimes, yes, it's teaching like this. Sometimes it's sitting across uh, the table at a restaurant or a coffee shop and just saying, hey, you know, you, you've talked about really concerned about you don't know what God's will is for you with your family. Let's just walk through. What does this look like in your role in your family? What does this look like? What are God's principles? And you're instructing and coaching. But particularly, what does this look like when I'm following him? What does it mean when he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men? What does it look like to fish for men and women? And there can be instruction. He says, we got to do that with wisdom. You got to know your audience. You got to know the occasion. You got to know what challenges they face. You got to know where they have gaps in what they know. You got to know where they have some misalignment in how they live. And he says, we do this, why? So that we may present every person complete or mature in Christ. That's the aim, is to present every person complete in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10 gives us a, a snapshot of what Paul's envisioning. See, as believers, as those who've come to faith in Christ and following him, we don't have to fear facing a judgment. We're like, uh, you're not in. But a lot of us are not aware that we will face a judgment, but it's not one that we need to fear. It's one where we will stand before him at the Bema, the judgment seat. It's what athletes did back in Paul's time. If you competed according to the rules, you were possibly eligible. If you didn't, you were disqualified from receiving the reward. And you would stand before them just like our athletes now. They get Olympic medals. It's happening in Paris this year. You'll see it, right? And according to how you compete, according to what you, you did with what he invested in you and me, there will be a reward. And you see this in Matthew 25. You see this in 1 Corinthians 3 and 4. You see this in 2 Corinthians 5 and Romans 14, some other. But this is the judgment seat of Christ. He says, we must. That means it's necessary for whom? For all. If you name the name of Christ, if you are following him, if I do, I must appear. And that word appear there is everything's going to get laid bare. My excuses um, my lesser story that I feel like was, was put upon me and therefore I'm, I'm not to blame, whatever it is. This is about appearing before him as a steward where you're not going, it's not going to be, are you in or out? It's going to be, how faithful were you with what I entrusted into your life? The gifts I gave you, the relationships I gave you the work I gave you for your hands to do, and yes, even your suffering. How did you steward them? Did, did, did you glorify me through how you handled them? 
Did you strain and labor according to my power or your own? And then rewards will be given based on that. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done and done while in the body, whether good or bad. And bad can be translated worthless. You treat it flippantly, you kind of wing it, it'll be exposed. You invest yourself, you do so, as Paul would say, I do this, I labor and strive according to his power. We do so according to his power in the moments he's given us with the gifts he's given us and we're responsible and faithful. Possible, we may hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And the question would be, that is, is part of the frame of God's larger story. To hear, well done, good and faithful servant. To be commended for straining and going through the pains and investing in that relationship that eh, it's a little awkward, it's a little of a rub for you. If we, if we live for well done, good and faithful servant, that will inform it. If we don't, it will inform it. And he's saying, I want that for you so that that day is a day of um, great, great joy and not regret or not, man, I kind of just live for a lesser story. So he says, I embrace my stewardship. I make it known, why? So that I may present every person complete in Christ. You were, now I, so that. And so the, where we end here today is, so what? You were, Colossians, now I, Paul, am investing in you intentionally, intensely, efforting, but so what? Well, we said um, a few weeks ago, and we're going to say it again next week and even give you some more practical stuff um, in terms of walking this out. But we said our expectation this year as elders here is that every person who's an ABC or is part of the ABC family, that every person would be personally involved in disciple making. Now, that could mean I need to get under somebody and grow as a disciple. But hopefully, even as you're doing that, the ripple effect would be I'm beginning to see who it is that God would have me invest in. And particularly, it also means with neighbors and coworkers who don't know Christ, that we begin very consistently and intentionally as the Lord brings them to mind. I'm gonna choose a few and I'm gonna pray for them and I'm gonna be on the, on the lookout and my ears perked, my radar up so that I might listen that I might share a meal or coffee with them, that I might serve them in a practical, meaningful way. And then if God would open their ears, their, you know, open the door, I might share part of my story of who I was, hostile and engaged in evil deeds. And here's who I am in Christ. And here's how he gives me hope and, and a sense of meaning every day. Um, that's what we desire for everyone. So the questions we would ask is, if that's the expectation, and it's not our expectation as elders, that is God's call on every one of us to love him, love our neighbor, and make disciples. We don't get to wiggle out of any of those. And this isn't about what do we have to do. This is about actually, if we want to live lives full of meaning and flourishing, then get in God's larger story so that others would come to know him. So it's the two questions, if that's the expectation, is what's your story? Where are you in your story? And then what's your next step? Or today we're gonna ask, how's your stewardship? 
Paul says, I'm to steward this message of Christ in you, the hope of glory. We are to steward the, the gifts he's given us, the relationships he's given us. And in fact, I want you to hear this. We say this a lot, but we talk about being disciple-making ambassadors because ambassador has a little bit of that tactileness for us of going, I'm reminded this is not my home. And yet I'm also reminded that I have been sent wherever he has sent me to live, to work, to represent him so that he would be on display, so that others would have Christ in them, the hope of glory. And so what I want to say is where you live is not happenstance. It's a stewardship. So when you drive in your neighborhood, when you walk up the stairs in your apartment complex, when you go to that job that is Dilbert on steroids, and you're like, why do I work here? Well, part of that is, is to glorify God with your gifts in that place, to flourish in that work. Do the best you can. Don't be a lousy worker. But you're also there as an ambassador. You're also there as one that he calls us and he calls you to steward so that others might come to know him and or grow in him, maturing in Christ. So that's the question is, what's your story and how's your stewardship? How are you stewarding the relationships that are not an accident? And how we are doing so has a lot to do with or can indicate for us the story that we're actually living in. Um, Your feed and mine are flooded with lesser stories. Your social media feed, your wherever you go, you, those feeds of lesser stories, they can stoke our discontent. You talk about lacking, that, that man, my life is behind, my life lacks. And they can lure us by our longings into lesser stories. But amidst the cacophony of promised comfort and life by, you know, having life by the tail with no restrictions, and, and for us having this life to be envied by all, Paul is saying, don't believe the lie. In a couple of weeks, he said, I want to help you see through all the lesser stories, all the toxic religions, all the offers that are false and counterfeit offers. I want you to see that because I want you to see you have everything you need in the all-sufficient one, Jesus Christ. I just want us to close our eyes. I want the worship team to come up. We're going to confess again. This is why we proclaim him. We proclaim him so that you and I would mature in Christ, that we would mature in knowing him and growing to become like him. If we want to know if we're having success as a church, then the question is, how are we as a, as a body reflecting him? Do we have a joy even in the midst of suffering? Do we have a joy in see? Do we have and, and we'll see it in the, this context again next week. What's at stake for us is if we are not investing in the next generation or the people next door, door to us or the people next to us here in life groups or wherever it is, if we're not doing so, what's at stake is immaturity. What immaturity looks like is in the, if you look, peek down in the passage, when we're easily deceived or defrauded, um, when we drift instead of being rooted and being established, so instability, but maturity looks like Jesus. It looks like enduring suffering for the sake of others. It looks like grace 
even when it hurts, extended to others. Mercy and forgiveness extended to others. It looks like stability. It looks like security. It looks like vitality, life. And we have, I think, the wrong picture. We think maturity is sour-faced and big-headed. Oh, it's big-headed, all right, but it ain't Jesus. Would you stand? Our prayer is going to be this song, because all those lesser stories are offering you a false hope and me a false hope. And this is a chance for us to reset our hope, proclaim him again as that hope, and as the cornerstone of a life that can be full of meaning and flourishing. And that's how we're going to end. You take us out.